James chapter 3, verse 13 begins like this. Who is wise and understanding among you? Who's wise in here? You want to raise your hand? That'd be me, by the way. Come talk to me afterwards. What a great question. Like, how do you measure a wise person? Can you measure it by money? Well, yes and no, right? Wise people are good with their money usually. But there's a lot of people that have money that aren't so wise. Like I was reading, 50% of NFL players will go bankrupt. Why? They didn't have the wisdom to deal with money, right? Or just go on TMZ, right? Fools and Ferraris is what I call TMZ news. Right? They got a lot of money, but oh my goodness, they're morons. How do you measure wisdom? Is it Benjamin Franklin? Early to bed, early to rise, makes a man healthy, wealthy, and wise. If that's true, my garbage man is killing it. For most of us, early to bed, early to rise means our internet is broken. Like no free seven-day subscription to Disney Plus. I'm just going to bed, man. James is going to contrast a certain kind of life. I'll just call it. He doesn't actually call it that, but I'll call it a foolish life with a wise life. And he kind of gives us how to measure if you're living wisely or foolishly. It's pretty brilliant. So let's look. Look at verse 14. He begins with the fools. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not wisdom that comes from above, but is earthly unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exists, there will be disorder and every vile practice. First, the fool. And James says, here's what a fool does. A fool has bitter, jealous, selfish ambition. Verse 14. The Greek phrase that, that James grabs right here, if we could go back 2,000 years, it would be used to describe a politician going out, canvassing for votes, you know, doing whatever he needs to do to make himself look good. God bless you and God bless America. Let's sing the national anthem, right? Doesn't matter what's happening in his heart. He's just gonna put out a certain product that he thinks will sell, Right? Politics are not kind, right? You even take just inside of a party, the politics inside of a party to try to raise yourself above other people. What do you have to do? I say, man, I really like that guy. And he's a great baller. And he's a great orator. And you should, here, he's got fantastic ideas. Does that happen ever? No, 
It's got to be just this hammering and tearing down. And whatever weakness you see in somebody, you exploit it for your selfish ambition. That's the idea here. Which kind of made me crack up a couple years ago when Chris Matthews, he's a commentator on politics, he wrote a book called Life is a Campaign. I'm like, really? And I never read the book, but he did an interview with a guy that I found fascinating. I'll read it for you. It's on his book, Life is a Campaign. He's trying to sell it. So they give him his moment, his spot. Tell us about this book. He says this, quote, life is a campaign. Everything about getting jobs is convincing someone to hire you, right? It's about getting promotions. It's about selling products. It's always a campaign. It's a campaign to get the girl of your dreams. It's a campaign to do everything you want to do, end quote. Wow. So the interviewer responded by saying this. This book seems like a recipe for sadness. (laughs) Your book makes it seem like it's all about winning, but nothing about doing what is right. There has to be some core of soul in there. What campaigns are, are photo opportunities that are staged. But there's nothing in this book about be good be competent, only win. To which Chris Matthews responded with a sneer. He said, quote, that's been written. It's called the Bible. Ooh. I think, bro, you should read it. It might help you out. James would say, living life like life is a campaign all about selfish ambition, all about getting your thing, he would say it's foolish. That that kind of life isn't it. And then secondly, verse 15, he adds that this whole thing, it's earthly, unspiritual, demonic. That you can live your life in such a way where you never acknowledge that there's anything more than this life. No God, no afterlife. Look out for that. The famous author, Russian author, Dostoevsky, he said this, if there is no God, everything is permissible. What he meant by that is real simple. If there's no authority that's over man, then man gets to determine what's right. And look out for that kind of world. Because that kind of world gets really ugly. We start getting earthly, unspiritual, and then ultimately demonic. We act like animals. So if you go to the animal kingdom, what what is the major thing that makes the animal kingdom work? Might. Survival of the fittest, right? If it's not, animals never ask Should I do this? Ought I to do this? What does an animal ask? Can I do it? Am I strong enough? So I'll give you the best example I have. Uh, Five, six years ago, we've downgraded since this point. We had a lot of animals at our house. So we had two horses and two goats and a bunch of chickens. 
And this lady gave me a, all this, all these apples. So I'd sit up on my little hill and I'd throw these apples down into the field and they kind of break up. And when I would do that, all that little farm animals, they'd want to eat some of those. So the chickens are the fastest. So they're, you know, flapping their wings and running over and they get and they start pecking the apples. But inside of chickens, there's a pecking order. And there's always that one hen, just old, mean hen who runs the crew. Like even the rooster's like, no problem, lady, take it. <laughs> I don't care, man, you're crazy. If you don't have chickens, think of certain marriages. Okay, that's it. Ah, you can have it, right? It's like that. So she's running it right there. And then the goats are the second fastest and they just come, they would come over and they just put their head down, poof, feathers fly, right? Because they're stronger. They're not like, oh, those poor little chickens. You know, they're hungry too. No, why? I want the apple, I'm taking it. And the horses plodding along, just come over their big heads, just knock the uh, goats out of the way and they eat, right? Now, no one said that's wrong. Why? Because that's the animal kingdom. It's earthy. It's unspiritual, right? It's just, that's the way that world works. But when you get rid of God, when there is no God, that's it. But humans know that's not right, don't they? Humans have orphanages and we adopt people and and we care wider, right? The fact that a person can sit on a corner who's broken and hurt with a sign that says, hungry, need food, and he gets lunch makes us very different than the animal kingdom. Because in the animal kingdom, if an animal is hurt or broken, they become lunch, right? We know that's not right. And yet, in spite of knowing all this stuff, we have what I call philosophies. And you can go throughout history, there have been people that have tried to make, how do we come up with a way of life where we don't have God? A way of life that is earthy, and unspiritual. They wouldn't say demonic, but that's where it goes to. I'll give you two examples of this. The first philosophy is a guy by the name of Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Anybody heard of him? Okay, he's nuts. So this is what he says. He said that there's going to come, and this is 300 years ago, 400 years ago. He said there's going to come A natural man, I would say an earthy, unspiritual man, that has freed himself up from the hinders of religion and he will live for one thing, pleasure. It's all about pleasure. So you look at Jean-Jacques Rousseau's life, that's how he lived. He found being a dad and being a husband not pleasurable. So instead he took a mistress And this mistress, she ends up getting pregnant. Well, he doesn't want to have a kid. So what he did when that child was born, he picked up that newborn baby, took it away from his mistress, marched down to a Christian orphanages, orphanages, a place where they take children. (laughs) The acoustics in here are sometimes funny. I actually got it right. No. (laughs) And the orphanage handed the baby off over the cries and wails of his mistress. He did that a second time and a third time and a fourth time and a fifth time because he found fatherhood too difficult. 
He didn't care that, hey, this makes pleasure for me. What about your mistress? What kind of damage are you doing to her? What about the orphanage that now is tasked with caring for all these kids that you decide are too hard for you, right? It's a philosophy. When you go earthy, when you go unspiritual, look out. The second one is a guy I actually like. His name is Friedrich Nietzsche. And I'll read what he has to say. And part of his thing is just evaluating what happens in a world without God. So this is what he says. Life itself is essentially appropriation, injury, overpowering of what is alien and weaker, suppression, hardness, imposition of one's own forms, incorporation, and at least at its mildest, exploitation. What he's saying is, If you're strong enough, if you're powerful enough, do whatever you want, take whatever you want. And he actually was critical of Christianity in Europe because Christianity in Europe helped the poor and the weak and allowed them to survive when they should have just been taken out. And he says, all it has done is worsen the European race. It's all about power, philosophies. So what James is saying is he's saying, look out. These same things, these same ideas are here today, are they not? Like it plays out this same way, the same kind of earthy, unspiritual, eventually delving into demonic stuff. It still plays out today that we have this. So today our society is called secular. Do you know what secular means? It's the Latin for now. So secular society means this. We don't think about anything outside of now. There's no afterlife. There's no God, there's nothing, just secular, just now. What makes me happy now? What gives me power now? The same things, these roots are still in us today. We like now, don't we? We're a now society. Anybody here like to wait? You're like, man, I just love waiting. I go to the DMV even when I don't need to. I just go there and hang out. It's awesome. (laughs) It's the best. No way. Well, these philosophies, what they do is they actually begin to work into how we live. So a young couple, they say, I don't want to wait. You know, marriage is hard. Marriage takes time. Marriage, I have to wait for that. And I'm afraid I might lose my boyfriend. I'm afraid I might lose my girlfriend. So we'll just go ahead and sleep together now. We don't want to wait. Pain now. Like how much medication is for pain? How much damage have we seen over the last 20 years from pain medication? And pain medication, a lot of the stuff that, that pain medication deals with, I'm not saying there's not places that there's important things for pain, but there's a lot of pain stuff that if you, did, if you stretched out or you did some stuff, you wouldn't have the pain. But we don't like that. We like, got a pain, get a pill. Just give me a pill, doc. Just want the easy way out. Well, drugs, right? Drugs give you a euphoria. But all the drugs are doing is playing on what the brain can already do. Did you know that? That's all drugs do. They play on what your brain is already capable of doing. The same high you could get out of drugs, you can also get from a good hard workout or accomplishing something difficult and finishing it. Like you get those same things. Your brain naturally releases these things to reward you for that. But that takes time and it takes energy. And it's easier just to grab a substance. 
So these things, while, while they're like, okay, th- that's philosophies, they're still driving what you and I do. And what James says is this, look out, because if you live that way, verse 16 says, the end result is you have a vile, disordered life. It seems like, ah, oh, power and pleasure is going to do it. No. Read what happens to Rousseau. Read what happens to Nietzsche, these guys, how the end of their life is. It is a disordered, vile life. It's unspiritual. It's earthy. And maybe the biggest one that we make the mistake on this, we do philosophy on, and I've got to bring it up every once in a while, is sex. Because we are a sex-saturated society, are we not? So from time to time, I'll just grab this out and say, okay, let's talk about this. So here's the best way I've ever had sex explained to me. You guys know what inflation is? Uh, United States, we run two, two and a half percent inflation, which is good, sometimes less than that. Here's what inflation is. You have, a do- uh, you have a piece of paper and it's printed with green stuff on it. And you can take that piece of paper and you can walk into anywhere and you can say, hey, I want to buy something with this piece of paper. Is that piece of paper worth anything? No. The piece of paper is actually saying, hey, I have an agreement that this piece of paper is worth something. And the only reason it's worth something is because there's this thing called the Federal Reserve that puts in policies and protections and boundaries around that piece of paper so that we agree to use it to trade goods and buy stuff, right? Well, if the Federal Reserve failed, what happens is you get into what's called hyperinflation, So if you watch the news this year, there's a country to the south of us called Venezuela that went into hyperinflation. So we're 2%. Venezuela, back in April, hit 300,000% inflation. So their bolivar, which is their currency, it means this. If today you had 10 million bolivar, you could buy a BMW, but tomorrow you can only buy breakfast. That's how fast it was being devalued, right? That's inflation. Inflation requires protection. It requires boundaries around something in order for it to keep its high value. Okay? So, sex. Sex is like, it's, it's like the dollar. And God has put these protections around sex, around intimacy, to keep the value high. And I'll say, you can go outside of the Bible to find this. I've been to a bunch of countries Every civilization through all time has always had these protections over sex, right? So here's God's economy. Men want intimacy. Amen? No one's going to say it. Like, I'm not saying that, dude. You can say it, but I'm staying quiet on this one. Right? So God is like, okay, men, if you want that, here's what you have to do. It's built into our DNA. You got to get a job. You got to start making some money. You got to buy a house. Like like there are requirements. You need to go ask dad if you can marry the daughter. I'll repeat that. You need to ask dad (laughs) if you can marry that daughter. Right? Right? We just had these, there's these, these just, they're in every civilization. You go anywhere through any time. There's always been some boundaries, some things around intimacy saying, no. Wait, my America, right? Shave, get a job, be considerate, be respectful, change your clothes, whatever it is, right? There are these boundaries around intimacy. Well, go back 60 years. We have what's called the sexual revolution, 
right? And there's a bunch of stuff that contributes to that. Birth control came in. Um, you have kind of an overthrowing of authority with, um, with the hippie movement, all that kind of stuff. Drugs are now more readily available. They change people's perception. And so you, you have this, just th- these, this recipe for a revolution. Well, out of that, here's what happens. Men and women begin to act the same. So it used to be women were like the preservers of society. But then all of a sudden in the 60s, it was like, hey, women, you can act like men. And intimacy, you don't have to go through all these, these hurdles, these protections in order to have intimacy, right? So that's what comes out of it. So now the, the new economy is, right? Uh, women act like men and men act like slobs. And that's the new economy. Well, Matt, I'm a guy. That doesn't sound too bad for me. Oh, really? So here's... My story, it's the story of many men my age. My dad figured this out. So he has four kids with my mom and he just takes off, right? Rousseau style. I'm not, that's too hard, man. That thing's too hard, I'm gone. So he wasn't there for me to teach me how to be a dad to my kids, to teach me how to love a woman, to teach me how to fix a car, to teach me how to live in community, to teach me all these things, right? So yeah, that might sound good for you, but here's what's happening. We end up with a civilization that's earthy, unspiritual, and demonic. And if you don't believe me, go volunteer in one of our schools. Go volunteer in one of our schools and see what's happening now, right? We are now third generation into this thing where the sexual revolution is having its impact. Its wave is out there. It's wave. So now men act like slobs, women act like men, and the kids are being run over. That's the new economy. That's what happens when we subscribe to philosophies like Rousseau or Nietzsche. And so James would say, you end up with a vile life. Good news is he gives us the other side that leads to better stuff. And this is wisdom. This is how wisdom lives, all right? So one note on that I should probably add. So how do we add back in the value to intimacy. It's we start treating marriage, engagement, weddings as sacred spiritual events. We say, "Uh uh-uh, if you're a young couple, it's not, hey, we're almost married so we can have sex. Uh Uh-uh, almost doesn't count, right? I almost scored a touchdown, but I fumbled on the one yard line. Yeah, it didn't count, man. I almost invested in Apple stock 20 years ago. Yeah, but you're poor now, okay? Right, almost doesn't count. It's we start saying, no, God put these boundaries on it to keep it high so that you don't end up with a kind of life that's vile and disordered. It's we we regain back the sacred, spiritual, heavenly things that God has given to us and we maintain the high value on them. That's how, okay? So wisdom now. James just gives us eight marks of wisdom. So verse 17. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. I'm just going to run through these pretty quick. 
Verse 13 adds one. It says, wisdom will be seen in good conduct. So number one, wisdom has good conduct. Wisdom is lived. It's lived out. People can't say, hey, I am a wise person. You can't say that. In fact, if you say you're a wise person, I'm going to doubt it. The way that I will know you are a wise person is the life that you live. It will look wise. You will know it's wise. Number two, wisdom is pure. Wisdom begins in the heart, not in the head. A wise person is not trying to pull a fast one on everybody. They're not trying to get ahead. They're not trying to be, have these ulterior motives that they'll do whatever possible to get their things. That's earthly, sensual, devilish. No, it's pure. It's trustworthy. What is the basis for every relationship with people? Trust. A pureness of heart. You have good intentions for me, right? It's trust. Did you know this? The only reason you're getting your iPhone from China is because of the Quakers. You can either blame them or thank them, depending on your perspective. So it's the Quakers that made international trade possible. So if you could rewind the clock to 300, to 300 years, 1719, you want to buy a shovel from England. How do you do that? Do they send the shovel over to you hoping that you pay them? Do you pay them hoping that they send the shovel over to you, right? It was a giant dilemma until they found the Quakers. The Quakers were so honest and so trustworthy that the Quakers became the middlemen for all trade because they knew this. If they say they sent us 50 good shovels, we will have 50 good shovels. That's how trustworthy they became. That they were, it was unbelievable the numbers when you look at the amount of international trade that went through Quakers. Like they were the mafia back then. They controlled everything. A kind mafia. We must break thy kneecaps. Please forgive us. Right? I don't know how it happened, but... Well, it was trust. It was this pureness that allowed that. Are you pure? In the way that you do business. In the way that you treat your neighbors. Are you pure in the relationship that you have right now? If you're dating, are you pure? Wisdom. Wisdom begins in the heart. Not in the head. It's pure. Number three. Wisdom is peaceable. So wisdom beats swords into plowshares. Do you guys know that reference? It's on the UN building. It's from Isaiah chapter two, verse four, speaking of a coming kingdom. When implements that were used for war and for destruction are converted into instruments for gardening and production. It's awesome. Wisdom is peaceable. There are some people that just love to fight They antagonize, they egg people on, they provoke people. Listen to me, any fool can start an argument. It doesn't take much, right? Comparison in a marriage, you're just like your mother. Well, that's helpful. That's gonna go a long ways right there. You start telling a story and then every second word is correct. No, that's not happened. No, this is, right? Oh, it's not helpful. Wisdom. It's peaceable. 
It takes what could be a war. You could use that to battle. You could use that to cause problems, but instead you turn it into something brilliant and productive. It de-escalates. Proverbs 15.1 says, a kind answer turns away wrath. It's the perception that, you know what? I'll take one for the team, no problem. It's I'll lose this battle in order to win his or her soul because that's what's more important. It beats swords into plowshares. Number four, it's gentle. Wisdom is gentle. What's the mark of gentleness? I just put Mark Scudstat in my notes. <laughs> right? Isn't he a joy to be around though? Yes. yes. Why? Because he has this great quality. It's wise to be gentle. Number four. Number five. Hey, that's, what else do you say? Just look at Mark. Talk to him afterwards. Number five. It's open to reason. I say this. Wisdom is always in school. Wisdom listens. Let me repeat that. Wisdom listens. It wakes up and goes to school. Read Proverbs 1 if you have a chance. The way that book of wisdom opens is fascinating. Because it says, hey, listen, wisdom, it begins to describe where wisdom is at. And wisdom's not in the seminary, it's not in books, it's not in my study. It says wisdom is in the street, it's in the gates, it's on the corners. What Solomon is doing there is saying, listen to me. Wisdom is all around you. That has become a principle of my life. So I have this saying, I have it written at home. And it's this. The world is a university. Everybody in it is a teacher. So when you wake up, go to school. That's what wisdom says. I, can, I'm, I, I've, I haven't already made up my mind on everything. I'm always open for new information. I'm always open for new ideas. I'm going to school every time I wake up. That every person I meet today is an image bearer of God and I can learn something from them, negative or positive. I'm open to reason. I want to learn. Number six, it's full of mercy and good fruits. Wisdom indulges in mercy. It just can't wait. Who can I show mercy to? Some people, they're like, who can I open both barrels on? Wisdom's the opposite. Who is the wisest being in the universe? God. It's an easy one. You can say Jesus pretty much has to be the answer no matter what. Who's the most merciful being in the universe? God. Isaiah 30, 18. God says, I exalt to show mercy to you. And if you read chapter 30, the whole context is Israel leaving God and going down to Egypt to get help. The one thing God said, don't do that. They're in direct rebellion to God. And guess what he says? I'm just waiting to be merciful to you. In the midst of your mistake and your stupidity, I exalt myself to show you mercy. I can't wait. If the person gets a dewy, you're saying, we gotta have him over for dinner. It's the opposite of the world does things. You don't ostracize them and push them away. Hey, we gotta bring that guy in. 
And he just made a lousy business decision and went bankrupt. Okay, we're going to hire that guy. That's what mercy does. And a wise person says, yeah, people are worth mercy. They're worth the risk. You will get way more miles from showing someone mercy than from making your point. You'll get way more miles from showing somebody mercy than you will from making your point. And wisdom knows that. Wisdom is impartial. I just say wisdom is blind. It doesn't play favorites. It doesn't say, hey, I like these kind of people. I don't like these kind of people. Wisdom is blind. There's no good old boy club here. It's none of those things. It's treating every person as if they were the only person because they are an image bearer of God. And wisdom knows that. Then eighthly and finally, wisdom is sincere. And I just put wisdom can't act because the Greek here, this term sincere, was used by the Greeks to describe somebody that was a terrible actor. You're just a terrible actor. You use this word sincere. So it's somebody that can't act because they're true. They're authentic. They're who they are. They can't act. That's cool. Like what's the one place that People really act all the time. Isn't it dating? Isn't dating the time that it's like okay to act? Like you dress yourself up, you wash your clothes, you shave, you put on deodorant, you laugh at jokes that aren't that funny, right? Because you're dating. Like normally you're passing gas and belching and you're a slob, but man, here, oh, I got to put on my best. You can pick up your towels, you're nasty. A sincere person would go on that date and act exactly like they are. If they'll take me like this, we can make this thing work. Wisdom doesn't act. So James make it real, makes it real clear. You can have this kind of a life. It's campaigning, selfish ambition, pleasure, power. It can be all that kind of stuff. But at the end of your life, what you'll get is disorder and vileness. Or you have a wise kind of life. In verse 18, he just says, you'll have a harvest of righteousness. At the end of your life, you'll have fruit in righteousness that's brilliant and beautiful. Seems like a real easy choice, doesn't it? But maybe you're sitting here saying, well, it might be an easy choice, but I'm 14 through 16. That's what I've been doing. That's how I've been living. I'm not in this other list. What do I do? Colossians 2, 3. It's a great little verse. It says, Christ in whom is hidden all, you might circle the word all, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You want wisdom? Guess how you get it? You hang out with Jesus. It's really that simple. So I'll give you the example that I have. Have you ever had a lunch or a meeting with somebody that you really, really admire? So a couple of years ago, I had lunch with a guy named Tim Mackey, who's one of my heroes. And I noticed a mannerism that he did 
The next time I was having lunch with somebody, guess what? I found myself doing the same thing. Why? I don't know. He just rubbed off on me. Listen, when you hang out with Jesus, what happens is he rubs off on you in the best way possible. Because in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. As we walk with Jesus, as we worship Jesus, as we admire Jesus, what happens is his flavor, his goodness, his wisdom rubs off on us. And so we're going to take communion. And I don't know a better way of hanging with Jesus than taking communion. And I would suggest this, as you're thinking and as you're sitting, as you're walking to get communion, maybe there's one of those eight things that you just say, that is not me. That is the one thing that I am not. Here's what I would suggest doing. Jesus, rub this off on me. As I partake in you, as I eat and as I drink, make this part of me. This week, as I'm going throughout my walk, as I'm doing my life, would your spirit bring to remembrance these things and give me the power to live wisely in that way? Okay? So I'm gonna pray. You're gonna grab communion. If you're on this side, walk around that way. Come back this main aisle to go back into your seat. On this side, walk out that way, come back in this main aisle, and then we'll take communion together. If you're on that side, you just do the same thing, but wherever you're at. Clear? Yeah. I can watch up here that it's not clear. (laughs) Jesus. We've all ascribed to some kind of philosophy in our life. And many of us, even this day, are reaping a bitter crop. And so each of us gladly receives your mercy, not getting what we deserve. Because Jesus, you took it for us. Now we get to come to the table and remember your mercy. Remember your grace. Remember your wisdom and your goodness. We want you, your word, the logos to become flesh and to dwell in each of us and to transform us. So I pray for every heart in here that loves you that's received you. I pray that our hearts would be good soil receiving a good seed that produces a harvest of righteousness this week. So even now, correct. Crack open our hardness. Break up the foolishness and replace it with your wisdom. We ask this in your name. Amen.